Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. For years I was a youth pastor, about 15 years of my life. Um, and being a youth pastor, you get to do lots of really fun stuff. And so uh, oftentimes we would get together for like a family get-together, usually Christmas or something like that. Um, and everybody would gather around to hear Jason's latest stories. And I love that because I don't know if you've caught on, on this. If you're, you know, maybe if you're new here, you don't know this. I, I kind of fancy myself a bit of a storyteller. I love telling stories. Um, I had a theater background, all that stuff. So I love to be able to kind of unravel a thread and, and all that kind of stuff. And I got some of that from my mom. My mom would tell stories, and some of them were true. And, uh, and, and, and uh, some of y'all have that same mom. Uh, so, uh, but it was, it was always just a great time to get a chance to, to, to just enjoy doing that. So I'd get there, and I would do this, and I would tell all these great stories. And then something happened. My uh, cousin went into special forces training, um, and he ruined my stories. So I would come in, and I'd be like, guys, let me tell you about my latest um, paintball episode. And he's like, yeah, I went to drive fast school this week and learned how to defuse bombs. Okay, fine. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So also, I went whitewater rafting, and then he's like, also, I went to jump school, and we were thrown out of planes. And I was like, what? I mean, it was the, like, I couldn't beat his stories. And so I was asking, and he had some videos he was telling us about jump school. And uh, I think he probably made this sound worse than it was. I don't know. But he said the first kind of moments of that, um, when they first taught him how to jump out of planes, they basically just chunked him out of planes and didn't give him hardly any training. So they, they threw him out. And you can watch these guys losing their minds. Like some of them are trying to scream, but you've got all this air blowing back at you. So their mouth is just doing that thing. <laughs> that like dogs do when you roll the window down. <coughs> the other guys are trying to run in the air <laughs> as if there's traction somewhere and they can't get any guys are swimming. They have no idea. They can't get anything going on. Um, and then he showed me some other videos and they went kind of through lessons and they learned all kinds of things. They learned certain moves of how to direct things and how to make things go a certain way and how to speed up and how to slow down. And then the, one of the last videos that he showed was them in full jungle gear with 60 pounds of equipment on them and their faces looked very different. They were trained, they were calm, and they were prepared to insert into enemy territory. He trained in what's called halo operatives, which is high altitude, low opening. Believe it or not, it's not just a video game. What these guys do is, in order to avoid radar detection, they come in from very high altitude, they have to jump and they have to descend at very rapid speeds in order not to get shot while suspended in the air, and they open their parachute at the lowest possible altitude in order to go behind enemy lines and rescue the oppressed and wreak havoc on the oppressor. You go, why do I tell you that? Because I'm here to tell you today as we enter into our Luke series, that is the story of the gospel. And I don't want you to miss it today. I'm going to show you how today is going to be an introduction into where we're going in the book of Luke. And I want you to know, kind of in the book of Luke, Luke breaks down into four basic kind of breakdowns. You have the first part, which is the beginning where, you know, you get to Luke and the birth of baby Jesus and Caesar Augustus issued a decree of the entire Roman world to be taxed and Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and that's part one. And then you get part three, I'll come back to part two in a minute. Part three is Jesus moving through Judea and all this stuff and going to Jerusalem and then the end of it is he's going to be heading to the cross for our sin and salvation. But there's this second part. And it's chapters 4 through about 7 where he's going to spend all of his time explaining what the kingdom of God is about. 
And that's where we're going to land for the next eight weeks, is right in this section. And it's pretty powerful. So let me give you some, some background in case you're not familiar with the New Testament. The New Testament opens with four biographies of Jesus. And by the way, some of this is going to be a recap for some of you. I actually did, the first part of this message um, was a text that we unpacked at the very first week of this year. When we unpacked a series called, or a theme called Decide. And so if you've lost track of that theme for our year, today we're going to bring you back to it. So I want to bring you back to a place that we've studied once already this year. And again, the New Testament opens with four biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's the doctor, by the way. And John. You might go, why are there four? Why not just one story that tells us everything we need to know about Jesus? Well, it's just like any of you. If you're going to go to a new restaurant, you tend to ask a lot of people. Read multiple reviews. You want multiple people's accounts of what's going on. Last year, Crystal and I went to Rome, and we looked for every possible piece of information we could on where to go, what to do, and most importantly, where to eat. And we wanted as many perspectives as possible. If you want to know a lot about Jesus, who he is, how he feels about you, the life that he came to offer you, you're going to talk to multiple people. And so that's why we have four Gospels. Matthew is predominantly written to Jewish people. He's writing to let people who have waited a long time know the Messiah has come. Mark is written to Gentiles who have become believers that live near Rome. John is written to a variety of people, and it's a really great book to start in if you're a new believer. And then Luke is written to one guy, Theophilus. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first. He's a doctor. He's a trained researcher. It's important that he understands what he believes. It is significant to him. What is he researching? He goes, I carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you, or so that I could write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may, what, church? Know the certainty which implies that there was some uncertainty for Theophilus, right? That he had some doubts, some questions. He goes, I want you to know with certainty of the things which you have been instructed. So Theophilus had questions. He's trying to make a decision about Jesus. And I love Luke's heart for this because Luke has a heart for outsiders, for doubters, for people with questions, probably because Luke's going, that was me also. So let me lay some things out for you so that you can be certain. And I love this because this is the heartbeat of our church. If you are a doubter and you have come into Crossroads, you, you may not know why you're here, but we're awfully excited about it. Like, we love that you're here. You got questions, been burnt, beat up, whatever it is, you came in here. We are grateful that you are here because, and that's the heart of the gospel. And Jesus is going to begin teaching about the kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom surprised everybody, including Luke. It's why he investigated it. See, everybody at this time was waiting with expectation of a world leader that was going to come and change everything. He was going to come and bring justice. He was going to come and end suffering. He was going to come and make everybody act right. Anybody looking for that anymore today? This is what government, science, education, economy, promise, and maybe even are well-intentioned in their promise, but rarely if ever deliver, and when they do, it is temporary. It doesn't last. Jesus did it, and he did it a different way than everyone else. He's going to tell them to care for the poor when they often marginalize the poor. He's going to tell them to forgive, and they had limits on their forgiveness. He's going to tell them to forgive unconditionally. They had a culture of anger. They had a culture of revenge. It was written into their laws, and he's going to tell them to put that away. In marriage, the women were property, and he's going to tell them that they have value. 
He's going to tell them a different answer for hope and salvation. He's going to tell them to be generous when they did not have a culture of generosity. And he's going to associate with people that none of the religious people wanted to associate with. He's going to do it all different from the beginning. And it's going to lead to a joint execution between religious leaders and secular powers. Because they were unsettled. They're like, this can't be the leader we've been waiting for. This can't be the answer that we've been waiting for. And so today, if you are unsettled a little bit, maybe you've got pain, you've got some disappointment, some discomfort, I just want you to know for the next eight weeks, you're going to be in the great place because we're going to spend eight weeks with Dr. Luke. And I think there's some healing you're going to get in this gospel because you're going to see Jesus and his power and his might through it. At the time that we're going to pick up in chapter 4, Jesus is 30 years of age. He's beginning his official ministry on earth. And I want to look at this, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the what? Church, don't miss that. If you're going to go into battle with Satan, you know what you need to be full of. He is full at the beginning. He is not depleted. He, he is not an empty he is full of the Holy Spirit, he, and he goes into this situation. He was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I don't want to derail onto this, but sometimes we, get, we pray to get out of the places God's sending us. God's not always sending you into perfect places. Sometimes he's sending you into war in the wilderness. Right now, the Holy Spirit says, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, verse 2, for 40 days to be tempted of the devil. And he ate nothing in those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Now, some people look at this and are like, Jesus went camping? I love camping. First of all, I don't love camping. It's dumb. Okay? Matter of fact, I align with comedian Jim Gaffigan on this. If you don't know what he said, I'm going to show you one minute. Real quick, look at this. See? I'm surprised we can still get people at camp. Hey, want to burn a couple of vacation days sleeping on the ground outside? Uh, no. What if I told you to get to crap standing up in the woods? I still wouldn't want to go. You'll wake up freezing covered in a rash. All right, I'll go. My wife always brings up, camping's a tradition in my family. Hey, it was a tradition in everyone's family till we came up with a house. My parents never took me camping. You know why? Because they loved me. <laughs> It'll get you closer to nature. I want to keep the relationship professional. <laughs> if it's so great outside, why are all the bugs trying to get in my house? <laughs> some places you have to pay to camp. Now, you have to he is not talking about camping the way some of you guys camp, because y'all don't camp, y'all go glamping, and that is just weirder. Because you want the house, you just want to move it somewhere else. Okay. Jesus is in a desert called Yeshimon, which means the devastation. It's 40 days, no tent, no food, out in the elements, tempted by Satan. And Jesus is going to start off by playing great defense. See, Satan's going to tempt. Temptation number one is to turn something good into something ultimate. Verse 3 says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God. See, here's the deal. Write this in your notes. Satan loves to put a question mark in our life where God has put a period. He is fresh out of baptism, 
where God himself has declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God has declared who Jesus is. This tactic still exists for Satan. He wants us to doubt God's declaration of who we are in Christ so that we will go searching for our identity in something else. See, we often think of Satan's attacks the way we look at it in movies. We think that his greatest goal is to get us to foam at the mouth and levitate into the sky and have our heads spin around and vomit. That is not. He often wants to whisper to us lies, and one of the biggest ones is about our identity. He's not trying to get Jesus drunk or onto bad websites. He's trying to get him to base his identity on something other than who God says he is, and it's the same with us. But Jesus isn't messing around. Jesus says, I know who I am. Verse 4, Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live by bread alone. He doesn't say, what do you mean? He doesn't say, explain more to me, Satan. He doesn't open the door. See, too often we allow temptation to sink into our head. And it's not because, um, well, it's simply because of this. It's because we don't have other stuff in there to push it out. See, we need to fill our minds with the right stuff so that the wrong stuff doesn't invade. Oftentimes, we need to be reminded that our empty head is a dumping ground for lies. So fill it up with truth. Now, some people go, well, I don't understand what the big deal about this temptation is. He's hungry. He's in a place called devastation for 40 days. Give that brother a Hawaiian roll. I mean, let him have some food. I mean, I love bread. Any of you guys into Olive Garden breadsticks? Some of y'all just changed where you're going for lunch just now. It just happened. The only thing you can do to upgrade an Olive Garden breadstick is to dip it in that Alfredo dipping sauce. If you've never done that, it will change your life. You, if you don't know Jesus, you will after you try a breadstick because you'll be like, nobody else could do that. It's amazing. It is awesome. But the temptation here is not to turn a rock into bread. The temptation is for him to bypass God. See, Satan is tricky. He tries to tempt with something good to make it something ultimate. He does that for us with relationships or money, sex, or even our giftings. They're created for our enjoyment. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it is a matter of time before it turns into a bad thing that destroys us. God is not a pinata. Your faith is not a stick to whack him with to get what you want. That is not how it works. Jesus refutes this with scripture, but Satan comes back at it again. Temptation number two is to go around God to get something from God. Verse five. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Wow. That's a jump from turn a rock into bread to Satan worship is where he just leapt to. That is a big, big leap. He's saying, Jesus, if you want to be remembered, Jesus, if you want your life to matter, I've got a shortcut. I can help you reign without a cross. I can give you a crown without a crucifixion. I can give you a kingdom without a tomb. See, Satan loves to tempt with what God has already given us. Jesus already reigns. He already rules. He already has a kingdom. Satan is not offering him anything he does not already possess. This started all the way back in the garden when he tempts Adam and Eve and he said, if you eat this, you'll know the difference between good and evil. That sucker is a liar because at that point, the only thing they'd known is good, which means the only thing he is offering is the knowledge of evil. See, they already had the good, but he's trying to tempt them with something that he thinks God's holding out, tries to get them to compromise. It's like us, where we think, well, I want fulfillment in my life. And, and, and 
And so I'm going to look for fulfillment in other places. Satan will get me to compromise how I seek fulfillment. So instead of seeking fulfillment in Christ alone, I'll seek fulfillment in my uh, success or I'll seek fulfillment in my work or in my income, my bank account, my relationships, whatever it is, my fun, my reputation, my social media status. I'll seek fulfillment in that. And it doesn't lead to fulfillment. It leads to failure. And it leads to higher levels of depression and suicide we've ever seen in our world. Because we believe the lie that I'm not sure I can trust God, so I'll try it a different way. Jesus responds correctly in verse 8. Jesus answered him, for his written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan makes one last attempt. Temptation number three, to interpret God through circumstances instead of through his promises. So he took, took him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. Everybody say, for it is written. For it is written, he will give the angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That is scary that he says, for it is written, Satan is quoting scripture. You ever wonder why we push you so hard to get into the word of God? Because Satan already is. And you better know it better than him. He'll misuse it, misapply it, and twist it. He wants to divide us over things constantly. We live in a culture of content overload. You ever noticed, have you ever wondered if, like, it's not just that we have access to a million different social media platforms, a million different messaging platforms. I know y'all are just like me. I get messages on Facebook Messenger and email and text and phone calls and regular, I mean, regular messages. I get people sending me stuff on Signal and messages on Instagram and how many, like, it, you can't keep up. And that's just the messages, right? That's not the article after the article after the article after the article. Have you ever stopped to ask if we were ever designed to take all that in? The answer is no. There's a re- and so here's the thing, and here's where Satan works so cleverly in our culture today. And I'm not anti-technology guy, but I will tell you Satan will leverage any tool for his advantage. Is that I can Google something and you can Google something, and guess what? We don't get the same something. And so he reads something and I read something, and he goes, how could you think that, Jason? You're crazy. And I go, how could you think that, man? You're crazy. And you know what he just caused? Division. Because Satan is the author of division, deception, confusion, isolation. He wants us to begin to interpret the world through the articles, through the headlines, through the messages. He wants to inter- us to interpret the world through circumstances. And that's why we have to bond together and interpret him through his promises. That's why every Sunday you come in here, we will always preach from the word of God. We are not trying to give you a self-help message. We're going to try to give you a Jesus saves message. And that means that it has to come from his word, his truth. Because I got news for you. Nothing I got to say is going to be all that helpful to you. But his truth will transform your life. There is a reason we call you into Bible study and into the discipleship, into prayer nights, and into worship, because we need this. There are too many people in our world that they love Jesus as long as they get to define who Jesus is and what Jesus wants from them. They get to make up Jesus. But there is a problem with your made-up Jesus. Your made-up Jesus cannot save you. That is a major limitation of your made-up Jesus. And so we have to align ourselves with the one true Jesus, Jesus warned us about circumstances. In this world, you will have trouble. He said this thing is broken. Everything is full of sin. So we cannot be shocked when it is true. Instead, he says, in the chaos, in the struggle, in the challenge, focus on the promises of God. This world may be difficult, but it is a blip in time. It is temporary, and we anchor our life to him. It is eternal. Verse 12, Jesus answered him. It is said, do not test the Lord your God. 
Satan quotes scripture, and Jesus goes, I know scripture too, sucker. He said, God doesn't need to prove anything to me. He already has. I know that in Christ I am enough, I am beloved, I am forgiven, and my faith will not be based on ever-changing circumstances, it will be based on his never-changing promises. So verse 13, after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time, for a time, for a time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the what? See what didn't go anywhere in the process? He was full of the Spirit going into temptation, and because he was full of the Spirit, he was able to resist temptation. Because he was able to resist temptation, he comes out still full of the Spirit. I think maybe a lot of us, we experience a diminishing of what we feel as a connection to God. We experience a feeling where we don't feel strong in our faith. And it's not because the power of a holy God is not inside of us. It's because we have done a poor job at resisting temptation. And so we feel depleted of the Spirit when, comes, when the challenges come. And we need to be cautious in our life. I think resisting temptation and playing defense is what empowers us to go on offense. Satan often wants to try to get us to be drawn into lesser battles so that he can draw us away from the greater battle. I get people in my office all the time, they go, Jason, can we talk? There's something I'm struggling with. It's a relationship, it's my work, it's my mind, I'm not growing, whatever it is. You know what's almost never on anybody's list? Temptation. How? How do we have this many people in church and no one's being tempted with nothing? It should be on our list. Because I think oftentimes it's not resisting temptation that draws us away from the mission God's called us to. See, Satan's playbook, when temptation strikes, has never changed. Let me give you two quick things. One, temptation often gets triggered when we get stressed or overwhelmed. Anybody in here ever stressed or overwhelmed? Just a couple. Jesus was alone, hungry, and in a desert called devastation. Satan is badgering him. There is an onslaught of temptation. In the middle of being stressed, in the middle of being overwhelmed, have you ever had an old temptation sneak back up in your life? You thought it was in the rearview mirror, and now that craving for alcohol suddenly came rushing back for some reason. That, that ability to, to not value your marriage the way you should and to maybe look elsewhere comes rushing back. You thought you defeated it. Or in the middle of being stressed and overwhelmed, a new temptation suddenly shows up. You find out that you are vulnerable to sin, and sin sounds pretty good when you're overwhelmed and stressed. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know that all of us have struggled with this. Man, you want to indulge in something, and you go, I've had a bad day. I deserve this. Another thing that is true about his playbook is that difficult circumstances often lead to destructive decisions. I mean, you've heard this said many times. I'm sure sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. See, here's the deal. Don't miss this. Jesus walked faithfully in a desert called the devastation. Adam couldn't be faithful in a garden called delight. You cannot win this battle alone. You cannot do it in your own strength, your own logic, or your own willpower. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And I love this. Man, we are strengthened for defense and it leads us to being strengthened for offense. See, at the end of that text, it says, Satan departed him for a time. I see everything in movie scenes. And it's the end of that movie, you know, where you're convinced the bad guy's dead. He's laid out on the ground. 
or he's buried under a pile of stuff. And then right there at the last scene, right before they roll credits or in some mid-credit scene, you see they zoom in on the bad guy's face and he's dead. And then he goes, <laughs> and you go, oh man, they're a sequel. Or he's parried under the pile of rubble and you're like, man, it's over. And then out of the pile of rubble, and you're like, oh no, he's coming back. And that's what Satan thinks in this moment. He says, Mamie, you, you think this is, this, is, this is okay, but I'm going to get you next. He's the wicked witch from the Wizard of Oz. I'll get you, my pretty. Like, that's him. He thinks, I'm coming for you, and I will get you next time. I'm coming back for a bigger, badder battle. There's a sequel coming called The Cross, and I will nail you to it. That's what he thinks. But Jesus is about to move to offense. Jesus is going to go to war with the devil. There's a lot of themes in the Bible. There are two of the most common you will find, love and war. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus showed us how to play defense. Now he's going to go on offense. And listen, you want to be good, you got to be good at both. I love Luka Doncic, but brother, you got to play both ends of the floor. Some of y'all that know basketball know what I just meant, okay? Parker, wherever you are. All right. We've got to make sure that we are doing both. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It'll be on the screen. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe. A mighty evil spirit that was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity states that this universe is at war, but it does not think that this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise, and calls us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening to the secret messages from our commander and fellow soldiers, and that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. Christians believe that an evil power has made itself, for the present, the prince of this world. See, there is a problem in the world. We all know there's a problem in the world. What I want us to acknowledge is that there is also a person behind it. A person orchestrating and a very real person called Satan. Jesus will call him the ruler of this world. Paul will call him the ruler of this age. Ephesians 2 will say that he is at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you know who that is? People who are rejecting and rebelling against God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Because of sin... We are not who we were. We were designed to be something else for a purpose. God desires us to do something great with our lives. Things are not as they should be, but we have a king that has landed to restore order. Things are not as they should be. We know that. Right now in our world, there are 45 million people that are in slavery. There are more deaths in the last few years that has risen every year uh, deaths from alcohol, drugs, and suicide all have climbed. Let me tell you a startling statistic. They have climbed 65%. Deaths to alcohol, drugs, and suicide have climbed 65% in people 10 to 17 years old. 100,000 people a year are killed for proclaiming themselves to be Christians. We are about, just about the only group of people that can be openly attacked on any platform and nobody has to apologize for it. We are in a war. We are in a, a battle. There was a design to creation, a way that it was supposed to work, 
a way that nature was designed to give life to one another. We breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants give back oxygen. There's a cycle and a beauty to how it was created to work. There's a way that men are created to work alongside with women and in partnership and parents and kids. And Satan declared war on this perfection. He convinced us that in order to have life, we had to run from the author of life. It started in the garden, and Satan picked a fight to start a war, and we fell for it and sinned against God, and we joined the wrong team. Now, I want you to know, church, I'm about to run through a whole bunch of stuff. I don't want you to miss out on any of it. I want you to take it in, but I'm going to guarantee you, if you're going to try to take notes on it, you're going to miss. So I want you to hear this, because I don't want you to miss the timeline of what's happening here. In the middle of all this brokenness, what God could have done was he could have stepped back in in the garden and said, y'all clean this up, I'm going to be back in a few millennia. But he does not. He deals with the serpent. And he tells the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to put hatred between you and between her seed. And when he says her seed, it is a singular male pronoun. He says there is a he that's going to crush your head. But it's not any he, it's a specific he. A specific boy is coming, a hero who will crush the enemy. And he's telling us from Genesis 3 that God's solution isn't rules, it's a savior. Someone's coming and the prophets will point to it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then there will be 400 years of silence and then there's going to be a group of people with no hope and in the middle of the darkest time in human history Jesus shows up with a landed invasion behind enemy lines and Luke starts and you might almost be misled by the book of Luke because it starts with like angels and shepherds singing and you're like it's a musical it's gonna be great but you got to read the rest of the gospels because in Matthew Herod is slaughtering babies John gives us a view from the book of Revelation that what's really happening on Christmas morning is that a mighty warrior landed in a spiritual battle against our adversary called Satan and all of evil. Jesus launches his mission. Satan attacks him in the wilderness like we just looked at. He tries to get him to turn on God, but Jesus fires back Deuteronomy quotes. I don't know about you, but I feel like you need to read Deuteronomy really well. Satan is so desperate, and here's what he's desperate for. He literally is begging Jesus in that temptation. He says, I will give you everything and anything. Just do not do what you came here to do. He doesn't offer us that. He pulls us off sides with much less porn, money, and social media likes. He offered Jesus everything to stop what he was doing, and Jesus said no. And then Jesus is going to walk into a temple, fresh out of the wilderness, and say, give me a scroll. And they're going to do this. This is what it says in chapter 4, verse 16 through 20. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is right out of the wilderness, church. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I just want you to know, if Jesus had a usual habit of showing up at church on Sunday, we should too. He entered the, 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 the synagogue on a Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Verse, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This great prophet that had prophesied for hundreds of years. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That is a baller move. I'm just going to tell you right now. 
That is a mic drop moment from Jesus. Like you, it's unparalleled. He sits back down, and the eyes of everyone just kind of go, like, what is he saying? Here's what he's saying, verse 21. And he began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. In other words, all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, singular male pronoun, he is coming to crush the enemy. Hundreds of years of prophecy, Jesus shows up in the synagogue at the age of 30, and he goes, you've been waiting for a hero? The hero has arrived. It is me. I am here to liberate. I am here to set free. And he looks, I believe in that moment, I don't know this for sure, but this is just how it happens in my head. I believe in the, in the spiritual realm that we can't even see. He looks Satan right smack in the face, and he said, sucker, you picked the wrong fight. And he begins to do damage to the kingdom of darkness. When he sees disease, he often heals. When he sees sexual abuse and emotional abandonment, he removes shame and guilt. People who have thrown away everything for money and lost their family, he restores their wrecked lives. When he sees sin, he offers freedom and salvation. People ask Jesus what he's here to do. And I love what he says in Luke chapter 11. He tells this story of a strong man and a stronger man. The strong man represents Satan. And he said, Satan, the strong man, stepped into your world, into your kingdom. He took all your treasure and took all of you captive. And everything was going fine for him until a stronger man showed up on the scene. And the stronger man kicked the trash out of the strong man and took all the treasure back. And you know who the treasure is? You. That he rescued and redeemed you. That's what he's saying, man. That's our team. Man, when Jesus encounters demons, even they recognize him as God. They will say to him often, Son of God. And I love this. One time the demons look at him and go, Son of God, you came before the appointed time. In other words, they know who he is, and they knew he was coming. He's just earlier than they expected. They're like, man, we have so much to do. And he's here already. Jesus heads to Jerusalem, and his good friend Peter looks at him and says, Crosses are not for messiahs. And Jesus looks past Peter to who's really making that statement. And he recognizing that once more, it is Satan trying to get him to call off what he is there to do. And he says, get behind me, Satan. In John chapter 12, the Bible says, now is the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. The night that Jesus was betrayed in John 16, it says the ruler of this world is judged. And I don't get your head around that. On a night that it seems like, and everybody will write about Jesus being tried and judged, the Bible says the person really on trial and being judged is our enemy. And he will be found guilty. In Hebrew 2, 14 through 15, it says, Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things, so that through his death they, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil, verse 15, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. On the cross, when he who knew no sin became sin for us, he destroyed the violence by taking it on himself. Our pain landed on him. It killed him, but he did not stay dead. He rose in triumph, canceling out our sin forever, making us alive and winning the war for eternity. I love how the 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about this. He talks about how, how in this moment God disarmed Satan and made a spectacle of him. Paul will use the word in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 three times. It's the word triumph. And his readers knew what this word triumph was really about. It was a word they used when a king had won a significant war against a major adversary, an enemy. 
When that happened in the battlefield, a runner would take off and go into town, and he would tell everybody, we won, we won, and they would get all excited for lots of reasons. For one, they're not uh, dead. I'm like, that's important. And he says, I want you guys to get excited. So they prepare a homecoming party for the king. There's going to be a parade. They clean up the entire city. The king gets cleaned up. He rides in first. The enemy came in second, strapped to a little trailer thing, usually a wagon on wheels, and stripped naked. Why? Because naked is funny. Okay? And he does it as a spectacle to put this enemy on display. And then all the liberated, all those set free by the king, They come into the city with incense, and the whole city smelled like victory. When Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, he made a spectacle of him, and he removed the consequences of sin, and he set the captive free, and he takes lost dead people and says, you are mine. In 1 John 3, verse 9, it says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. And I don't know if you read that and went, so that makes me nervous. Are you telling me that I, as a Christian, I should never sin? Because, uh, uh, Jason, if I'm being honest, I, I sinned this morning. He is not teaching sinless perfection. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So you're going to struggle with it. It's not going to be easy. But there will be the ability to see progress. This verb is present active. It means that you no longer live in, you no longer enjoy what once held you captive and caused your Savior to be killed. You now actively resist the sin that caused the brutal death of your beloved king. As a matter of fact, I know this might be a hard statement. If you are running into sin and you do not care, I am not sure that you have the right to call yourself a Christian. I'm not saying that you don't struggle with it, but when you embrace it and enjoy it, there is something different going on there that needs to, at the very least, be talked through with somebody. We should see progress in our life. The night that Jesus was betrayed, two men ran off into the woods. Two men ran off into the darkness. One had Satan in him, and the other one wept bitterly. And you you look at it that night, and all you see is two men that ran off into the woods. So which is which? Time is going to show us. Time is going to reveal. One of those fell apart. And the other one came back to lead, filled with Jesus' spirit. Progress in your life is a great sign of the assurance of who you are in Christ Jesus. You are not who you're going to be, but can we praise God that you're not who you used to be either? Jesus lands as a warrior on a mission to rescue the oppressed and wreak havoc on the oppressor. And he makes us a part of his destroying work. Church, this is not our kingdom. Can we stop trying to live like we are kings of these little kingdoms? You do not belong. Your home, it's a great home, but it's not your ultimate home. It's not your kingdom. The world that you live in is not your kingdom. The work that you go to is not your kingdom. Trying to find out how to become the ultimate ruler of that little kingdom is not going to be what leads you to success. What God has done is he has strategically placed you behind enemy lines in places that he needed you to go. We cannot call ourselves Christians and be unwilling to take the light of the gospel into dark places. 
And you might go, why have I not moved up in my work? Or why has God not moved me from this place to that? And I would go, I don't know, there's a million reasons, but maybe one of them is that he has you where you are because that's where he needs the light. Like maybe think about that for a minute. Maybe it's not about elevating you up, but maybe it's about elevating the gospel where you already are. And by the way, why would God call you to a new place to expand the gospel if you refuse to do it in the place that you are now? Sorry, that's not in my notes. I'm just getting preachy. (laughs) This isn't our kingdom. We have to stop living like it is. This is not the life we make the most of. It is our eternity that we make the most of by living for our king behind enemy lines, fighting for his kingdom in this foreign land, fighting to help see more of the oppressed released. Satan thought, There's a sequel coming called The Cross. I've won. Sucker, that was not the sequel. The sequel is called An Empty Tomb. And you got your butt whooped. So many people are like, he said butt in church. Listen, cars have rears. People have butts. That's the way it is. When he walked out of his grave, there was no question who won. Jesus is the victor. And that's what we want you to see over the next eight weeks together. See, there's one question I want to challenge you with today. Is that is, whose kingdom are you fighting for? Whose side are you on? I I love watching our interns. Um, If you don't know this, we have four interns at our church. and um, It's really cool because we get to invest some time in them. And as we invest time in them, uh, it's amazing. Like, we, we can teach them something, like, on Tuesday, and then on Thursday, we're watching them tell somebody else the words we just said to them on Tuesday. And I kind of love that, because that's how it's supposed to work, that we're pouring into them, and they're turning around and pouring that into somebody else. The Bible, will just call it discipleship, relationships based in love that are entrenched in growing together and being the best warriors together that we can in this foreign kingdom. Let me, can I ask you, who... Who has a responsibility to disciple? Matter of fact, if you're a believer in this room, raise your hand. It's our responsibility. As a matter of fact, I want to go one step further. If you have been a believer for more than three years, stand up with me for a minute. If you are standing in the room right now, I want you to get your head around this. You have been walking with God at least as long as the disciples walked with Christ. And those guys turned around and changed the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. There were 11 of them dudes left. Look around the room. So if every single person in this room took seriously what it meant to be a part of this battle, took seriously what it meant to disciple other people, took seriously what it meant to share the gospel with other people, Rowlett would be changed. Our area would be transformed. I still believe that the greatest revival in human history is ahead of us. And I'm not trying to be greedy. I'm willing to share. I would just really like us to be a part of it. As a church, 
as a people. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your word and for the challenge this morning. I know this message is a little bit different, but the intent was to be a little bit different. That we would, God, take a moment to to just be reminded of what Jesus has done, why he has done it, and what work he has called us to. God, that you've called us to a great mission, to a great challenge. You've called us to be a part of this battle. But the great part about it is we're not trying to fight to see if we win. We have already won. We are just now in the active role of helping to rescue more oppressed people and bring them into victory. There are so many people whose lives live in defeat, but they don't have to live in defeat. They can know the victory that exists in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every person in this room would take this seriously. God, I pray that every person in this room would make this challenge. Matter of fact, for everybody else that's not standing right now, will you join us? Go ahead and stand with us. Because this is not simply going to be a call for those who have been believers for at least three years. This is a call to every believer. You don't have to wait three years to begin investing in other people's lives and then begin being a part of this work. So God, I pray that you would just challenge all of us to it. Not so that we can make this church bigger, but God, so that we can expand your kingdom one relationship at a time. I don't care what church they plug into. Certainly love ours, but there's a lot of great ones. God, we just pray that they get active in the war, active in the battle. There are hurting people. There are isolated people. There are lonely people. There are lost people whose eternity if, it was, if, it, if, if everything ended today, we would lose them forever. And we cannot be okay with that. God, burden our heart right now with names, with faces. And challenge us, God, to fight with you in this battle. For the people we love and the king that we love Oh, so much more. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.